Good afternoon, everyone. Have you ever stopped to consider the question, why is the Bible a book almost nobody seems to understand? Hundreds of different churches make conflicting claims about what the Bible teaches, each claiming that its own version is correct. Many ministers, ministers who supposedly make their living explaining the Bible, ministers who claim to represent Christ, frankly, admit that they don't understand much of what is in the Bible. For example, prophecy is to most professing Christian ministers an enigma. And it's often stated that the prophecies of the Bible, most of the prophecies were fulfilled in ancient times. Or that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a sealed book, so we're not supposed to understand it. And these are common arguments that reveal a lack of understanding about much of what is in the Bible. Many regard the Bible as a collection of primitive myths and legends which have no meaning for modern man in the supposedly enlightened modern world. This is a common idea or attitude that's held among people in academic circles, but not just in universities and colleges, but often even in religious circles, even in many churches. The Bible is regarded as pretty much a book of myth and fable and not really very relevant to our world today. The Bible is often ignored as having any relevance to not only lay members, but clergymen as well. And, of course, there are others who are more conservative in theological terms who have a certain amount of reverence for the Bible. But even to those, it is often a book of mystery, the major portion of which is obscure or undecipherable. And if you talk to the average person and ask them questions about the Bible or ask them to explain various scriptures in the Bible, probably the best you would get in many cases would be a blank stare. Why is that? In today's sermon, I want to discuss the enigma of the Bible. The Bible is perhaps the most widely circulated book ever in the history of the world, many millions, hundreds of millions, probably billions of copies of the Bible have been printed and distributed worldwide. Almost every household in much of the Western world has at least one Bible, and yet it is a book that is very little understood. Why is that? I want to discuss that in the in today's sermon, and we'll explore why it is that so many simply don't understand the Bible and also discover some vital keys to unlocking the understanding of God's Word so that we can understand it better. Some time ago, a woman that I knew at that time 
told me that her husband, who was a well-educated professional man, had been puzzling over the book of Genesis. He had come to the profound conclusion that the information in Genesis had been given to Moses by men from outer space. He reasoned that it was apparent that God had certainly not inspired the book of Genesis because had, or the Bible, as well as you know the rest of the Bible, as well as Genesis, because God had, if God had been the author, then certainly the Bible would be plain and clear to anyone so that anyone could understand it. That was his reasoning. And he went on to claim, according to his wife, that much of the Bible is illogical. For example, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden with the snake talking to them. Everyone knows that a snake has no organ of speech and snakes can't talk. Also, he exclaimed, the Bible doesn't even mention the pyramids, allegedly the greatest structures ever built, at least in his mind. So, since the Bible supposedly does not mention the pyramids, it doesn't seem to be, be a very good record of the past. Actually, the Bible may indeed mention the pyramid, the, at least uh, the Great Pyramid, perhaps even more than once. But whether it does or not, that really doesn't prove the point one way or another, either about the Bible's historical accuracy or credibility, nor does it really prove anything whether the Bible is itself inspired. But we might ask, did this individual have a point? If God did, in fact, author the Bible, then why isn't the Bible perfectly clear so that anyone can readily understand it? Actually, the truth would be shocking to most people. Most people have reasoned or assumed that God has been for thousands of years trying desperately to save mankind. In the Bible, we've been told, is God's revelation to man carrying a message that God is frantically struggling to get across to mankind so that people can be saved before it's too late. But this effort has been mostly unsuccessful because most people are not saved and never have been saved in the sense of believing in Jesus as their Savior. So if that's what God has been trying to do, then he's, he's been a colossal failure in being able to save most of mankind. The average person would be stupefied to learn that the Bible was deliberately written to hide much of its meaning from all those but to whom God himself reveals it. Now, actually, a lot of the Bible isn't that difficult to understand, and perhaps we'll get into that little aspect of it a little bit more later. For example, what's hard to understand about obey your father and mother or don't steal or don't kill? or don't lie. 
But nevertheless, the Bible is structured in such a way that much of its meaning is hidden from those to whom God has not revealed the understanding. The fact that the Bible is perhaps the world's most widely translated and distributed book and yet perhaps one of the least understood is a perplexing enigma and yet the Bible tells us itself that it was composed so that even God's own chosen people would be blind to its message under certain circumstances. The people of Israel have been chosen by God. They were, they were a, na- a nation specially called and chosen by God and given a, a specific mission and purpose. And yet in Isaiah chapter 28, beginning with verse 9, Isaiah 28, verse 9, we find the question, whom will he teach knowledge? Whom will he teach knowledge? Whom will God teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? This is the question here in in Isaiah 28, verse 9. Who is it to whom God will teach knowledge And who is it that will understand the message? Goes on to ask a rhetorical question in connection with this original question. Those just weaned from the milk, those just drawn from the breasts, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips... And another tongue, he will speak to this people. He's speaking, the prophet here is, God is speaking through the prophet here to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And it says to the people of Israel with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. They would not hear. In other words, Israel had the opportunity to hear. They were told the truth, but they refused to listen. They refused to hear it. And so it says the word of the Lord was to them, Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. So notice that it was structured in such a way, the word of God was structured in such a way, being precept upon precept, line upon line, that if the people refused to hear, then they might go and they might fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. They would not understand the message. They would walk in spiritual blindness and ignorance. Now, by the way, I'm well aware of the false teaching that these verses we're reading here in Isaiah 28 are, as it has been asserted, simply the reply of a a drunk to God and are 
essentially meaningless. That is one idea that has been promulgated about Isaiah 28 in this particular passage in the, in the book of Isaiah, apparently in an effort to, to negate any real meaning, which is one of the reasons people often don't understand the Bible because they, they don't want to understand it, so they make up some ridiculous or absurd or false alternative explanation. But Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible explains correctly that the entirety of Isaiah 28 verses 9 through 13 are in fact the words of Isaiah, not the words of a drunk. And Matthew Henry states correctly the sense of, the, of verse 10 saying, for our instruction in the things of God, it is requisite that we have precept upon precept and line upon line. That's the point here. That one precept and line should be followed and so enforced by another. The precept of justice must be upon the precept of piety. As these are Matthew Henry's words. In other words, he's using this as an example. The Bible builds precept upon precept. To properly apply justice, you must have piety or righteousness. It goes on to say the precept of charity or love must also be placed alongside that of justice. In other words, you, you can't really properly apply justice without understanding the concept of mercy. And you can't really understand love properly either without understanding the, the, the precept of justice and applying it properly. It all works together is what he's saying. And this is what essentially what God is telling us here in, in this passage of Isaiah that the Bible has to be understood as precept being built upon precept and line upon line. And here a little and there a little. In other words, the Bible is kind of like a, a jigsaw puzzle in a way to understand fully any particular doctrinal issue. You have to piece the information together a little bit here, a little bit there, and <clears throat> part of it in one place and part of it in another place. And it has to be done in a proper fashion so that the meaning is not distorted. And then if you do it properly, just like if you put a, a jigsaw puzzle together, eventually the picture becomes clear. But if it's just a jumble of pieces that are in no particular order, then it's not that clear. And when one rejects the precepts, when one rejects any of the precepts, which build upon and support one another, then one's understanding is degraded and it is eroded. And eventually, if that process continues, rejecting the precepts, any understanding, any spiritual, meaningful understanding is altogether lost. By the way, that's 
that's what we're approaching in our society today because we are busily as a society and a world casting away one precept after another that we find in the Bible and any, any soundness that we might have had as a society and a culture in times past is being eroded. And it's kind of like a, something being eaten out from within, ready to collapse when a, a bit of pressure is put on it because it's rotten and there's nothing inside to hold it together. The, the girders, the, the principles that have held our culture and society together for hundreds of years are, are eroding, being eroded, being cast aside, and the structure is ready to collapse. But this is a key principle of biblical understanding. And this principle was often stated by the well-known minister Herbert Armstrong as let the Bible interpret the Bible. Mr. Armstrong often emphasized this principle, let the Bible interpret the Bible, which is just another way of stating this principle that is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 28. In the Angus Green Bible Handbook, the same ideas elaborated on in the following explanation. This is quoting from the Angus Green Bible Handbook. Theology is the whole meaning of Scripture, the sense taught in the whole of Scripture, as that sense is modified, limited, and explained by Scripture itself. In the same source, Angus Green Bible Handbook also states, compare Scripture with Scripture. It is by the observance of this rule alone that we become sure of the true meaning of particular passages and above all, it is by this rule alone that we ascertain the general teaching of Scripture on questions of faith and practice. In other words, we need to study the Scriptures, compare the Scriptures, and we need to get all of the Scriptures on any particular question in order to come to a proper understanding of what the Bible actually teaches fully about that particular question. Also, Angus Green Bible Handbook goes on to say a passage in which an idea is expressed briefly or obscurely is explained by those in which it is fully or clearly revealed. And difficult and figurative expressions are explained by such as are proper and obvious. In other words, you don't go to some scripture that is the meaning of which is obscure and then use flights of fancy and imagination to try to negate what is clear in the Bible. Rather, you use those areas or passages that are clear in meaning to help shed light on those which are less readily understood. And this principle of carefully comparing the scriptures on a given subject with comparing scriptures with one another and letting one precept build upon another would be difficult to overemphasize in terms of its importance to correctly understanding the Bible's teachings. And refusing to apply this vital principle or not doing it correctly 
is one of the main reasons why the Bible is so often little understood. Now, many people, of course, don't even get to first base because they're really not interested in understanding the Bible to begin with. They spend very little time studying it or reading it. And if you're not studying it or reading it or paying attention to it, how could you expect to understand it ever under any circumstances? But when you do actually begin to focus on it and read it and consider trying to understand it, this principle is a vital one to understanding the Scriptures. Another important key to the enigma of the Bible is the use of symbols. And this isn't entirely unrelated to what we have just discussed. This, this is one of those examples of where precepts build upon precepts. Understanding the symbols of the Bible requires us to go to various scriptures and compare the scriptures. What many people do is they simply look at a verse or a statement in the Bible that they don't really understand and then they start using their imaginations to dream up explanations which are in fact entirely incorrect because they're just a product of somebody's wild imagination. We mentioned this woman's husband. Actually, I knew the husband too, not, not as well as I knew the woman in question because I worked at the same location where she worked, and so that's how I happened to know her, but, and I know, knew her husband through her, but she mentioned that he believed the Bible is not logical because, after all, it says in the book of Genesis that a snake talked to Adam and Eve, and we know very well that snakes do not have organs of speech and snakes don't talk. Now, almost anyone who has studied high school math realizes that the logic of a mathematical statement is commonly framed in a formula, in a formula that uses symbols. For example, let me ask you if this statement is logical. X plus Y equals Z. Is that a logical statement? Well, what is X? X is a letter of the alphabet. What's Y? Well, Y is another letter of the alphabet. And what is Z? Z is a letter of the alphabet. Anyone knows that you cannot add letters of the alphabet. You can add numbers, but you can't add letters of the alphabet. I mean, can, how can you add X and Y? Makes no sense. It's illogical. Now, if you got any one of a number of math books, you would find statements like this, though, you find math books full of statements like this, X plus Y equals Z or A plus B equals C. How dumb of those mathematicians to put illogical statements like that in those books. 
because you can certainly add and subtract numbers, but everybody knows you can't add and subtract letters of the alphabet, right? So is the statement x plus y equals z logical? Well, there are a lot of mathematicians that think those statements are logical because they use them all the time. But the fact is, such a statement is illogical unless you understand the fact that what is being used there are symbols. X, Y, and Z in that context are not intended to be understood literally as letters of the alphabet. They are intended to be understood as symbols of something else. In fact, they're intended to be symbols of numbers. And so when you understand the letters are actually symbolic of numbers, then it makes perfect sense to believe that X plus Y could in fact equal Z. It makes just as much sense to say that the Bible is illogical because it says a snake talked to Adam and Eve as it does to say a math book is illogical because it says X plus Y equals Z because they're both using symbols. Now, if you don't understand the meaning of the symbols, then these are meaningless statements and they don't really make a lot of sense. It, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to think that a snake came along, crawled along, or however it got there, in the Garden of Eden and started talking to Adam and Eve. If we want to understand the Bible, we need to realize that much of the Bible is written in symbolic language. There are a great many symbols used in the Bible. And it's only when you understand the meaning of the symbols that you begin to understand a lot of the meaning that is locked in those symbols. For example, the snake in Genesis 3. Now, people without understanding, people believing that a snake literally talked to Adam and Eve, ridicule the idea of a snake talking to people. Now, certainly God could arrange for a snake to talk if God actually wanted to do that. But what most people don't realize is that the point of Genesis 3 has nothing to do with the fact that a snake talked to Adam and Eve. You've, you've perhaps seen pictures portraying the story of Genesis with a snake wrapped around a tree talking to a woman. But if you substitute a literal meaning of a verbally transmitted symbol for its symbolic meaning, you will miss out on the real meaning of what is intended to be expressed. And you often will be completely misled, just as if you take X, Y, and Z as, as literally meaning letters instead of being symbols of something else, you won't ever understand the meaning of the formula. And you won't understand what is being expressed in Genesis chapter 3 if you simply take what is stated there in terms of a snake talking to a woman as literal. 
and this is true of many of the symbols that are used in Bible, one of the one of the ways that people become deceived is by taking those things that are intended to be symbolic and trying to apply them literally. Or also sometimes applying or taking those things that are intended to be taken literally and trying to spiritualize them away. Either approach can be deceptive and lead to error. But the Bible interprets its own symbols. The Bible doesn't just throw symbols out there and then leave us to use our own imagination to interpret them. The Bible interprets its own symbols. Now in Genesis 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The word serpent in this verse is from the Hebrew word nakash, which means to hiss, to mutter, to whisper, to divine, to enchant. And it is related to a word which means brassy or bright. These qualities are associated with snakes or serpents. Some snakes hiss. They don't talk, but they make a hissing sound. And many snakes are brightly colored. But the serpent is used in Genesis 3 as a symbol of something else, someone else. It's not speaking literally of a creature that is a physical animal, such as a snake, but it is speaking of a creature who is like a snake in certain respects. It says, it says that the snake is subtle or cunning as it is in the New King James Version, subtle in the King James Version, which is from the Hebrew arum, which means crafty or cunning. So what we're told here is that this serpent, whatever it was, this creature, this serpent-like creature was, was more crafty, more cunning, more subtle than any other living creature. And it was, it says it was more cunning than any beast of the field or actually would be better translated any other living creature or any, any living creature of the field. It doesn't say that it was exactly like those creatures, but it says it was more cunning and more crafty than any of the living creatures which God had made. Now, what, in fact, is this serpent? If this serpent is not literal, if it is symbolic, then where do we find that explained in the Bible? Well, the Bible is very clear about what and who this serpent was or is. Revelation 20 and verse 2 says, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. That's the very same serpent that was encountered by Eve in the Garden of Eden, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. 
Now, the devil is not a snake. That is not a, it's not a physical creature that crawls along on the ground, has no legs, and uses uh, muscles and skeletal features to move about. That's not what the devil is. The devil is an angelic being, a powerful, brilliant angelic being. And that's who this serpent is. That's who, that's the one who came to Eve and to, and to used guile to deceive her. It wasn't a snake talking to Eve, it was Satan the devil. An angelic being who certainly has the power of communication. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, Paul said, I fear lest somehow, he's writing to the church here, he says, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And then in verse 14, in the same context, he says, no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. This serpent was in fact Satan the devil who came to Eve pretending to be something he was not, an angel of light, her friend, her pal, someone who had her best interest in, at heart. And he was going to enlighten her. That's who the snake was that's what that symbol of the serpent represents an angelic being we find more about this being written about in Ezekiel 28 beginning with verse 12 and we see in this passage that a another symbol is used for Satan here the king of Tyre now Tyre Certain, a certain point in history was a powerful trading empire and it was extremely wealthy and rich and the, the, the devil is referred to here metaphorically as the king of Tyre and it says in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Whoever this king of Tyre was, he was in Eden, the garden of God. Now this would not be referring to the literal human king of Tyre because no king of Tyre was in the garden of Eden. But this being characterized here as the king of Tyre was. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared 
for you on the day you were created. This was a created being, but one of unimaginable beauty. And as is mentioned here, uh, appeared to be perfect. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. This explains who it's talking about here in very clear terms. This is the anointed cherub. A cherub is a type of angelic being. There are actually key, uh, three cherubs mentioned in Scripture by name, and one of them is this one that is being discussed here. These were archangels. Cherubs used in this sense, the term indicates an archangel, one of the very highest ranking of angels. And you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones, talking about the vicinity of God's throne. He was there directly in the presence of God. One of the covering cherubs, there were three covering cherubs originally, as they are spoken of, who were associated directly with the throne of God. Later on, when the temple was built, actually the tabernacle first, later the temple, then there were uh, representations of these, of, of two cherubs, two archangels that were associated with the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat was placed inside the temple that nobody ever saw, by the way, except the high priest once a year. But there were two of them there then. There originally had been three. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. He was cast out of his place where he had been appointed. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may, might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever talking about the destruction that will occur to the, the one who is the literal king of Tyre, humanly speaking, at the end, but also in principle to Satan himself who's going to ultimately be destroyed, not in the sense of no longer existing, but he... He will be completely deprived of, of his place in God's creation. And this is reflected in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, where it says, The Lord said to the serpent, Satan, the devil, 
Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and she shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ and how Satan would seek to destroy Christ, but he himself will wind up being the one being destroyed. This reference to crawling on one's belly and eating dust are metaphors for utter humiliation. As we read in various other places in the Bible, for example, in Psalm 44 and verse 25, it is speaking of one who has been humbled and experienced disaster. It says our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Psalm 72 and verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Speaking of when Christ comes back and subdues his enemies, in Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This was what Satan wanted to do. He wanted to kick God off of his throne and take over the universe. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, or the grave, the pit, to the lowest depths of the earth. Those who see you will gaze you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness? and destroyed its cities who did not open the house of his prisoners. All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword to go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people the brood of evildoers shall never be named other scriptures indicate that ultimately satan will be well we just read earlier where he will be chained up for a thousand years we didn't read the entire passage there but that's what it's referring to and then later cast into outer darkness apparently wherever but this is what the symbol of the snake was picturing in the book of Genesis. It wasn't at all about what we think of as a long, stringy creature that crawls on the ground. This was a powerful spirit being who appeared to be an angel of light. Another related device that's used in the Bible that often is a source of confusion for
for people because they do not properly understand the use of this device or how to deal with it, and that is parables. Parables, a parable is much like a symbol, except that a, a parable is, is an analogy, and a parable actually may have several symbols within the parable. A parable is, is a story or an example that is an analogy or something of something else. In Matthew 13, verse 13, Jesus said, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. Now, some people have mistakenly had the idea that God has willfully and deliberately shut up people's understanding from the truth because he doesn't want them to know the truth. That's not the case at all. God revealed the Bible. God, God gave the Bible to us to reveal to us the truth. But he also gave us the Bible, as we've already mentioned here, so that if it is not properly approached, then it will not be understood. Notice what Jesus said here. He said, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. Israel had the Bible uh, revealed to them. They didn't have all of it back in ancient times, but they had a, a good deal of it. <clears throat> they had been given the law at Mount Sinai, They'd been given a lot of instruction in how they were to live. They'd been sent prophets one after the other, many of whom had left writings which were recognized as the word of God. It wasn't that they didn't have the message, but they did not understand it, most of them. But notice what, why this was. Notice what Jesus said. He said, because the hearts of the people have grown dull or literally gotten fat. Now, an animal who, who, who grows too fat can have, uh, have deposits of fat that develop around its heart and that fat can often become very hard. And that's what the picture is here of a heart that has become hard or dull. And it says their ears are hard of hearing. And it says their eyes they have closed. He went, and went on to say lest they should see. In other words, if it were not for the fact that their hearts had grown dull, their ears were hard of hearing, and their eyes they had closed, then they could see, and they could hear, and they could understand. 
and they could be healed. They could be converted. But Jesus was speaking to them in parables and the parables themselves, without the understanding heart, without the willingness to understand, were just virtually nonsense. The word parable is from the Greek word parabole, which means a similitude or a, it means literally to throw alongside, to throw alongside as by way of analogy. So a parable is a similitude or an analogy, often containing symbols, but to those who are dull of hearing, those who have closed their eyes to the truth, the true meaning of the parables remain, hid, remain hidden, or, or remains hidden, I should say. Notice what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 28, verse 7. But they also have erred through wine. This is God speaking to the people of Israel. They have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. What is being pictured here are a people and especially a leadership who are acting like, like a bunch of drunks, a bunch of people who are so drunk that they can they can't stand up. Then they're vomiting all over the place. And what it's saying is that their judgments are so out of whack, so, so completely off base that it's as though they are totally drunk. Staggering around. Unable to comprehend reality. Goes on to explain this further in in Isaiah 29, it's not talking about literal drunkenness here, although that could apply at times, but this is, uh, this is really itself a parable or an analogy. In Isaiah 29 and verse 9, pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. Notice it says blind yourselves and be blind. If you want to be blind, God will let you be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. No, it wasn't the wine so much that was the problem here. Although, as I mentioned, that could be a factor depending on the circumstances. But here it's not really talking about wine. It's talking about a different kind of drunkenness, a, a drunkenness that is even more lethal than that that might be induced by wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of a deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. 
Therefore, the Lord has said, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among these people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wives shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. The reason they had become spiritually blind is because they were hypocrites. Because they said they would do one thing, but they actually did something else. They gave praise to God with their lips, but their heart was removed from any intent or desire to actually obey God and apply his word. So they had become like a bunch of drunks, lacking vision, lacking understanding. You might wonder sometimes about some of the decisions that are made by national leaders, not only in this country, but other places, and maybe scratch your head and wonder what on earth is happening. Why decisions are being made which seem to make no sense whatsoever. This is similar to what was going on in Israel in ancient times at the time of Isaiah, Israel and Judah. Difficult times actually, at least part of Isaiah's lifetime, they had, Judah had a fairly righteous king, but but even at that, there were a lot of problems in Judah as well as in Israel. And it wasn't, it was about this same time that Israel was uh, in the process, process of being destroyed as a nation in the sense that they were going into captivity and Judah was going to, to follow along later because they were going, they were headed down the same path of destruction. In Isaiah 19 verse 11, we read, surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. This is talking about Egypt. And how do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now. and Let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt. Those who are the mainstay of its tribes, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. So the Bible uses drunkenness as a symbol of confusion of a lack of wisdom, of a lack of understanding. And it is a result of the rejection of God's word, the rejection of sound principles, sound understanding, the rejection of sound principles of morality, just ordinary morality, as well as 
specific laws and principles that we find in God's word that we are expected to live by. Because men have refused to yield to God, the knowledge of God is hidden from them. And when you refuse to acknowledge God, then you are going to be deceived. Now we might ask, is God the author of confusion? Is God the author of confusion? He, if he structured his word in a way that, uh, that leads to confusion in certain circumstances, does that make God the author of confusion? In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, it says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive, as the law says also, and going on to speak there of keeping order in the church and so forth. But it says that God is not the author of confusion. But Satan is. Satan is allowed to confuse and deceive just as he was allowed to confuse and deceive Eve. James 3 and verse 13, James 3 and verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. If you want to have understanding, then live in meekness and wisdom and have your conduct good in the sight of God. Then you won't be confused. Going on, he says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, the wisdom associated with envy and self-seeking, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. You can take a look at human society, and you can see permeating a lot of what goes on in the world is characterized by envy and self-seeking which leads to confusion in every evil thing. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, is a prophecy and says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Speaking of a, an individual who appear, will appear on the scene at the end of the age and is referred to in this same chapter as the man of sin, says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. See, if you reject the truth when you have it available, then you will be deceived. If you choose not to believe the truth, then what is left? 
If you reject the truth, what's left? What's left is falsehood. What's left is a lie. And if you choose a lie over the truth, you're going to be deceived. That's what Israel did. They, they chose to reject God's word. They chose lies. And we live in a world very similar to that, to that, to, uh, to that uh, same age today, a society, a nation, a world where the truth is routinely rejected, where politicians, so-called leaders, routinely lie and think nothing of it. They lie without compunction. They don't hesitate to lie, even when the truth would, let's say, at least give a better impression of them to people. If they, for example, admitted some error or mistake, just tell the truth about it instead of trying to lie and cover up, people might think more highly of them. But we live in such an age that people lie about any and everything and think nothing of it and are loath often to tell the truth about anything. If you choose to lie, if you choose lies, you will be deceived. It says, for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The world doesn't want to hear the truth. It doesn't want to believe the truth. And when it's told the truth, it will reject it in most cases. Symbols are used in used liberally in Scripture for at least two reasons, symbols and parables and the like. One reason is to condense the subject matter because much can be expressed easily in symbols that would be difficult or impossible to express any other way. You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. A picture is often a symbol of something. And you can put in a, in a compact way in a picture meaning that would, might take many words to explain. And so symbols are used in the Bible for that reason because a lot of meaning can be packed into a short space using a symbol. Think about when you understand, for example, the symbol of the serpent and what it means in connection with Satan, that, that conveys an image, a picture that tells you a lot. And also, another reason that symbols and parables are used is that they serve to hide meaning from those not prepared or willing to receive it. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is writing about how Israel was deceived under the old covenant and how they were blind to the truth, or at least much of the truth under the Old Covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 13, he's speaking of 
of the difference between the spiritual understanding of characteristic of those who are genuinely converted under the new covenant with the many carnal Israelites who were under the old covenant but weren't actually spiritually converted. It says, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. In other words, they can read the Old Testament, but they don't really get it because they haven't repented. It says the veil is taken away in Christ. When one turns to Christ, when one turns to to God in repentance, then the veil of ignorance and blindness is removed. In Romans 11, Paul writes about the blindness of Israel, and it said, he said in verse 7 of Romans 11, What then Israel has not obtained that which it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Going on in verse 20, later on in the chapter, Paul explains further, well said because of unbelief they were broken off, speaking of the physical Israelites, and you those he was writing to in the church, stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, speaking of the Israelites, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief. See, the, the, the crux of the issue was they didn't believe God. They had no faith. They rejected God's word. They wouldn't believe it. But he says if they do not continue in unbelief, in other words, if they start believing God, then they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature, speaking of, to a congregation of mostly Gentiles here, grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be gathered into their own tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden made a decision. God made a judgment which affected all mankind. And in verse 14 of Romans 5, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even under those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam made a decision. He chose death. And death has reigned over all mankind. All mankind has been affected by that decision. And, and this, as it says here, this even includes those who did not follow in the path of Adam and reject God. This decision affected men like Noah, affected men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's affected all mankind down through history. In verse 16, though, we see that God has a plan to restore mankind, to remedy the problems brought about by man's willing blindness and unbelief. In verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Talking about the sin of Adam and Eve. But the free gift which came from many offenses, or the gracious gift perhaps would be a better translation, which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, or the gracious gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Satan has been allowed to blind mankind to the truth. But the condemnation which has occurred will be remedied ultimately through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, however, Jesus said John 8, verse, beginning with verse 37, he said to some of the Jewish leaders of his day, he said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. God's word, for the most part, has no place in the hearts and minds of most human beings today. They want nothing to do with God's word or at best just give lip service to it. He said, as these people were, by the way, in verse 38, he said to them, I speak what I've seen with my father and you do what you've seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, he said. Why is it that they did not understand? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. The world does not hear or understand God's word because it is not of God. Because it has chosen to follow the lies and deceptions of Satan the devil. And it has rejected God's word. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded. God has allowed the world to be blinded, but it's not God that's blinded the world, it's Satan. Because the world has preferred to believe Satan's lies over the truth. The God of this age is blind to them who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ as the image of God should shine on them. Notice he said, they do not believe, lest, if they did believe, in other words, they would understand but they choose not to believe. Now, not everybody, of course, has necessarily heard the truth in a way that might be comprehensible to them, but many have. Many have had the opportunity to hear the truth and have rejected it. And many more have rejected it than accepted it. Paul said to the Athenians, though, that God has created human beings so that we might become his offspring, his children. And yet mankind is reveling about in spiritual blindness and ignorance. And he said in Acts 17, verse 30, speaking to the Athenians, he said, truly these times of ignorance, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead, that is, raising Jesus Christ from the dead. But God's 
desire God's command for all mankind even now is to repent. God is not necessarily delighted or pleased that people are living in ignorance and spiritual blindness. That's not really what God wants for mankind. But God has, is allowing it. He's allowing it because that's what mankind is choosing. But there is a, a time coming when God is going to intervene in such a way that the blindness will be removed and people will understand. In Isaiah 29, verse 18, it says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see, see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel for the terrible one is brought to nothing in verse 20 of the scripture. And the scornful one is consumed and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. In other words, what God is going to do is he's going to bring repentance to the earth and with repentance will come spiritual understanding. In Isaiah 29, verse 22, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face grow pale, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they shall hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Israel and fear the God of Israel and those who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. So the day is coming when this enigma of the Bible will be remedied completely. When there won't be people on the earth who do not understand the scriptures because the conditions on the earth will be changed in such a way that will lend themselves to spiritual understanding, unlike the kind of world we live in today. But required for that to happen is repentance. Part of the formula is repentance. You don't have to wait for the millennium to understand the Bible. Nobody does if one is willing to repent. Proverbs 1 and verse 23, we read, Turn at my rebuke, in other words, repent. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. In other words, it's a promise of God that if you repent, then God will pour out his spirit on you and reveal to you spiritual knowledge. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 25. He said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. The rhetorical question in Isaiah 28 is, To whom does God reveal knowledge? Is it babes just drawn from the womb? Jesus said, I thank you, Father in heaven, that you have revealed these things to babes while hidden, hiding them from the wise and prudent as viewed by the world. 
Even so, Father, for it has seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice the invitation here that Christ gives us when he says, everyone who is in labor and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus Christ invites us to learn from him. He invites us to share our burdens with him or to let him share our burdens. Perhaps would be a better way of putting it. Because he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ wants us to learn from him. He invites us to. And if we do that in humility and meekness, as we approach, if we approach Christ as children, willing to learn, willing to be taught by God, willing to humble ourselves and put to, into practice God's precepts, his rebukes, his chastening, his correction, if we'll, we're willing to do that, then we will be given spiritual enlightenment and understanding. It says in Psalm 111 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have wisdom, learn to fear God. It goes on to say, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. A good understanding have those who do the commandments, who actually obey God. They have, they're the ones who will have the understanding. That could include you or me or anyone willing to put into practice God's word. God is unlike what some believe that God just kind of picks people out arbitrarily and reveals certain spiritual knowledge to some people and withholds it from others capriciously. That's not how God operates. That's not how, how God deals with people. God makes the truth available to many people. Eventually, he's going to make it available to everybody. But if we want to have a relationship with God, a meaningful relationship, when we have the opportunity to have knowledge revealed to us, we need to take advantage of that opportunity. When we're corrected by God, we need to repent. And if we refuse to repent, if we refuse to obey what we know to do, that will present a stumbling block to us and it will prevent us from growing in spiritual understanding. It may even place us in jeopardy of losing whatever understanding we might have acquired up to any given point in time. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, because it has given, been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, 
but to them it has not been given. Now, anyone in this room, many of the people listening to this message, either now or later, have been given a knowledge of at least a portion of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of people who do not have that knowledge, vast numbers of people. He went on to say, for whoever has to him, more will be given and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. We can see this as, as encouraging, but also a warning. Because if we don't take advantage of the opportunities that we have to grow and learn, we could wind up having even that what, which we have taken away from us. And there have been people who have had that experience. You're, you may be acquainted with some of them. People who understood certain things about the kingdom of God and the, who understood a lot about the Bible at some point in time, but who no longer have that understanding. Because at some point along the way, they chose to turn a different direction. They quit repenting. They quit growing. They quit seeking God. And so they've lost much, if not all, of what they had. And so Jesus said, Therefore I speak to them in parables, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, and do not understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, they have, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. The reason that we have the knowledge that we have is because we have been receptive to an opportunity to know the truth. But we need to appreciate the value of what we've been given. We've been given a priceless treasure of knowledge and understanding that can be for us a wellspring of eternal life. And those of us who are privileged to presently be a part of the church of God, to have the spiritual understanding and knowledge that we have that relatively few other people on the face of the earth have had or have now, we need to appreciate the value of what we've been given value of the opportunities that lie not only at our feet now, but will continue to be there in the future if we continue to develop and grow. We also have an opportunity and an obligation to help proclaim that truth that we've been given to other people so that they can hear it, so that they can have an opportunity to, to understand the Bible. If we remain faithful, then we can 
be a part of helping others to have the enigma of the Bible solved for themselves. And we can ourselves increase in our understanding. Our challenge is to grow in understanding. Our challenge is to become more perfect in obedience, to repent of our sins, to change, to conform our conduct and our faith to the word of God and to, to the will of God so that we can look forward to the reward, so that we can look forward to salvation and honor and a place of responsibility in God's eternal family and kingdom.